Hello, GM, GM, and welcome to another episode and the final episode of the Den NFT Artist Society podcast. I'm your host, Meta David. In fact, this episode is so final that when we come back, we will no longer be called the Den NFT Artist Society. We will be called the Blockchain Experience. So I'll talk more about that in uh, at the end of the episode. So we'll get back to this episode, of course. Our guest today is Travi. I think he's best known for being the host of Fired Up on the Blockchain, but there's so much more that he does. He's a member of the OG Collective, which is a group of notable collectors in this space, so he does have a good wallet that you'll want to watch. He's also a part of Disco Studios, which is a curated group of artists and collectors, so you can find his Discord there, and I'll include that in the show notes. And he also heads up the journey, which we talk more about in detail on the pod, but it at a high level is a grant program to support underprivileged children. And it's also an artist support fund. So I'm an avid listener of Travi's podcast, and he frequently talks about helpers in this space and people you can trust. And I can definitively tell you that Travi's one of those people that you can trust. Whether it's on the air or off the air, when you talk to him, he genuinely has that passion about you know good causes good vibes so he talks more about it on the episode but his choice of using the blockchain was very deliberate because he wanted to be transparent about how the journey's funds are being appropriated which i think is a testament to uh travi's character uh so we had a really good conversation uh we talked about you know uh, fired up on the blockchain we talked about the journey talked about west coast versus east coast music so i think you guys will really enjoy this episode so so here's what the agenda is going to look like we're going to hear a word from our sponsors we're going to talk with travi then we'll do the shout outs for the people who minted the last episode of the pod and then i'll give you some updates on the show's rebranding so let's get to it Ledger is the smartest way to secure your crypto holdings. Its hardware wallets are trusted by over 4 million customers and secure, manage, and store over 1,800 crypto assets. Using the Ledger Live app, you will have a one-stop shop for your crypto needs. Buy, sell, exchange, and grow your assets with Ledger's partners easily and securely. Stop getting your wallet drained. Head over to ledger.metadavideth.com and take self-custody today. Have you ever wanted to display your NFT art in the physical world? Look no further than TokenFrame. TokenFrame's patented high-quality physical displays start at 10 inches and run all the way up to 55 inches. They're truly built for authenticity. Just sign in with your wallet, connect to Wi-Fi, and cast your NFTs. It's really that simple. No subscriptions. They support Ethereum, Polygon, and Solana with Tezos on the way soon. It's no wonder TokenFrame is trusted by OpenSea, SuperRare, Nifty Gateway, Known Origin. Start flexing your NFT art by visiting tokenframe.metadavideth.com today. Travi, how are you, man? Are you feeling fired up? Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, friends and DGens, for the thousands in attendance and the millions listening in podcast land, my name is Travi. Yes, dude, I am fired up. I'm so happy that we're able to 
uh, have a second recording. Yes. Like why why not do it? I mean, why do it once when you can do it twice? I mean, that's what technology offers us these days. Yeah, man. I just appreciate you making the time again for this take too. Uh, the audio did not come out very well last time. And, uh, pre, you know, after regrouping and kind of talking it through, we felt that it'd be better for our listeners to give another take on this. Although, interestingly, a few people did listen to the it was well received. I didn't receive negative feedback, but I guess uh, you and I both being podcasters and being sensitive about things like audio quality is just like, yeah, I don't know, man. I think we could do better. So again, man, appreciate you making the time to just do another another go around on this. Of course, it was a good conversation. I really enjoyed it. Um, I'm going to look forward to having that same discussion again. Obviously, these are all things that you and I talk about you know, in real life and with our Web3 friends all the time. So you know, the more we can talk about it and really chop it up about what's been going on in Web3 over the last few years, I think uh, the more is is better, you know? Yeah, man. So for the second time, can you introduce yourself to our listeners? Yeah, sure. So like I said, uh, my name is Travi, I'm founder and creator of The Journey NFT, which is a brand that has uh, two aims, uh, two main aims, I should say. One is to create a grant fund for kids whose art, music, theater, and STEM programs are being defunded. And of course, we can talk a lot about that if you like. And it has an artist support fund as well. So we are supporting artists currently selling their work on the blockchain, uh, artists, musicians, all kinds of uh, beautiful pieces that are out there. And you know, the, the overall theme for that is it's the journey because it shows these kids if they stay on the journey and do something positive and stay on the right path, uh, they could take their journey and their first few steps and maybe one day sell their art or music on the blockchain like the current artists are doing. So um, that's that's just one of the things that I've been working on for a while. Also, a host of Fired Up on the Blockchain with Travi, which is a podcast that uh, I was lucky enough to have you as a guest on, man. So thanks for returning that favor. And of course, been involved with different boards and councils and Web3 uh, and just you know trying to spread that that love bring that one love to web three um that i try to do irl anyway man so yeah a lot of stuff we can touch on today yeah let's kick it off with the journey because i think that's a really noble cause and there i I don't want to steal your thunder because i you know know you and also we talked about it on the last podcast but i just love the way that on like kind of almost a technical level you're leveraging the blockchain and then of course it being a noble cause the way that you're kind of supporting two different types of uh, groups of people there. So can you dive a little bit deeper into that? Well, the Journey NFT is is a brand. It's something that's been gosh, like countless years in the making. Like it, my IRL come to Web3 basically. And and what I can say is, is this, like going back years, for the longest time, I was a teacher of students with special needs, with behavioral disabilities. And, um, you know, after a while, I was going into the, the inner city and, and working with kids there. Um, and it was really just something where I started to to notice about myself that I was able to, you know, reach kids and impact them on a way that a lot of people, as I was growing up with and going for my teaching certification, you know, they would look at some kids and they would say like, "Hey, that's a that's a bad kid," or like that kid's you know not going to make it or whatever. And I always would say like, "That's not a bad kid. It's just like you got to reach them in in a different way or or really get through to them differently." Um, and that even all started like when I, w- I was 13, I was like working at camps and I began to notice that. And then I was a coach. And then when I got the teaching cert, I went for the special ed because, you know, they, they do say it's a calling. And, um, 
you just kind of, and it's the same thing I, I try to do now, even, you know, talking with adults and, and on the podcast and stuff. It's really just listening to people and trying to understand what it is um, that, you know, that, that they need to be kind of validated for. And there's nobody more uh, in need of validation than a middle school kid going through it in the hood. Um, and, you know, these were a lot of the kids that I was working with. So leading up to the pandemic, one of the things I saw when, you know, I, I didn't always teach in the inner city, but I, but I, I, I brought myself into the inner city because I knew I, I had honed a, a craft, um, you know, as far as the pedagogy and the teaching and all that's concerned. But there was something about being able to really reach a, a students differently and really be kind of a guiding light in their life. Um, and kind of bring that one love mentality where like the world is doesn't have to feel like it's crumbling around you. So I, I would go in there, um, not far from New York City, but you know, but in the inner city. And I found that these a lot of the kids, even if they had issues like reading or issues with writing or, or math counting and that kind of thing, I found that they would get a lot of value and the light would shine in their eyes when the creative arts uh, were available and there was an outlet for them. So. You know, I had, I had a, a student, I think one of the only words he could write was like maybe his own name. Uh, and then he wound up staying after school and, and became a great drummer. Like he was an amazing drummer. He'd be like for every for everything that we did, every assembly, every concert, everybody knew him. Uh, and that was just really awesome to see because if he didn't have that and he's back in the classroom, he's kind of miserable, you know, just realizing that, shoot, there are certain barriers and obstacles that he's you know, the reality is he's going to have trouble with in, in real life. So really guiding him through that. And then as we got uh, closer to the pandemic and just after the pandemic, um, certainly after the pandemic, I noticed that funds, F-U-N-D-S, funds, were being shifted around. So some of those creative arts programs were being defunded and the money was being put towards what a lot of people refer to as learning loss. Um, because, you know, if you're learning at home from Zoom, there might have been some learning loss or like Google Meets and that kind of thing. And what kind of started to bug me was there wasn't really a way to see if there was learning loss. It was just sort of assumed that there was learning loss for everybody. And my thoughts were, well, you know, before you defund all the stuff, I mean, these kids haven't seen their friends. Like think about the social needs that they all had, the emotional needs that they all had. Like it's a little bit different than just saying, hey, you know, I'm going to coddle this kid. It's just saying this kid hasn't seen his friends in almost two years. And if they did, they were on the computer. So let them like <laughs> go, let them have a dance class or a music class or an art class with them. And, you know, it, and it's, it, this hasn't happened everywhere. But what I saw happening was some of the funds that were they were being removed from after school programs and clubs, the theater programs were completely being defunded. And that was being put more towards like, I don't know, like test prep, I guess you can say, or state testing and stuff. And, you know, it just so happened that I had a student who was, uh, he wanted to be a dancer and he uh, was dancing, uh, had his after school clubs where he was dancing. Pandemic came, he came back, wound up in my class, we're talking middle school. And, um, you know, middle school in the inner city uh, where there's a, a fair amount of gang culture. Um, that's where, you know, a lot of the kids, especially with the older siblings, there's a lot of recruiting that goes on during that time. Um, yeah, I knew that about the student and, and he lived in a, a multi-generational sort of gang household. And that was sort of just the culture of the area. And so as not to sort of, 
shame this kid, but it was more just as a teacher, your heart aches because you want to see them see that there's more that they could do in life. Um, so that's why it was like, Hey, you know, let's get some programs running. Let's get some after school things running. A lot of times I would take the money out of my pocket that I didn't have. Cause I don't know if you know this out there people, but teachers don't get paid a lot of money, but you know, you do what you gotta do for the kids. And then it just so happened. So he was begging and begging and begging for this after school dance class. It got defunded. I'm not a dancer. I wasn't, I wasn't, uh, you know, going to be leading the classes, but they could, there, there was a music teacher who could have done that, but they just weren't funding it. So, um, you know, lo and behold, you know, some time goes by and this kid gets picked up a few minutes earlier from school by his cousin. Uh, and he ends up uh, being driven to the high school where there was sort of a gang altercation there. And, uh, you know, my students 10, maybe 11, I'm pretty sure they were 10. And unfortunately, and, and, you know, fast forward this, if you're listening with, with kids around maybe like 30, 60 seconds, but, um, you know, my student unfortunately sat there and, um, this, the cousin that drove him to the high school got shot dead right there in the street, right in front of him. Um, you know, and, and thank God my student wasn't harmed in this situation, but I'm thinking to myself, like, this is exactly why I've been saying we need to keep these programs going. And so, you know, the next day came and I was kind of the person he leaned on and all this, all the things that go along with consoling your student. Like there weren't a lot of programs, even gui- not that there weren't guidance counselors, but because it was gang related, it wasn't this hyped up thing where it was like, hey, everybody, so-and-so's cousin died. It was more just like. We're just going to go on with business. And I'm just sitting here like, why? Like, you're already not giving these kids what they need to keep them in the school. You're making them like, like have the, not have the things that make them happy. Their creative outlets are gone. Like the, the kids are having a hard enough time as it is learning how to read and write. And then when I realized that the next day it was just business as usual at school and I got this kid like crying on me, I'm like, geez, um, I realized that I had to put out some, some, um, you know, whatever you want to call it, some breadcrumbs to some of my friends that I knew from the Web3 space. And, you know, I said, you know, there are some ideas that I have. It revolves around really trying to take care of kids um, and making sure that they don't lose funds for things that are going to keep them in school and keep them out of trouble. And, you know, a couple, couple months go by and, um, you know, some really great people and some really great stars aligned and uh, the journey NFT itself was was created. So, um, that's really kind of the backbone of the the reason why it was created. But then even like during the original first few meetings I had, um, I, so Fanzo is is a partner on it. He's an awesome a podcaster, a creator in his own right. Um, the artist is Tyler Vaughn. Uh, he worked on things like the Crypto Dads, and he's kind of been all over the place. Um, and you know, there there have been a fair amount of advisors who I've been talking with over time. But one thing that I did also notice, and here's where the artist support fund comes in. I was reading that, hey, OpenSea might be losing the royalties for the creators. And I was just like, not to sound cheesy, but I was like, that does not sound very Web3. So (laughs) I said, you know what we should do? We should have a component within this where a separate wallet, uh, you know, has a percentage of funds that go directly to artists right now in the space. So you know, to me, the hashtag supporting artists is real. Like I really try to make sure I learn about as much art that's out there, music, um, the artists that you and I both talk a lot about. Uh, and there's also that other wallet for the grant funds. So I've been building that up and working with the foundation more on the foundation to come. I actually have a great, um, a real, a meeting with them 
they've got a lot of national and international partners. So it's more just us aligning what, what I view as a roadmap uh, and they, they view as like where they could put their funds. And um, I'm really optimistic to see how far we can stretch the journey as an actual fund, as an actual program. Um, as it stands right now, uh, I purposely haven't moved any of the funds away. If we did, we can fund some things locally. But as you know, like there are some really incredible ideas that I have and some of the um, the advisory board has that we think that this can be something really, really special down the road. So that's some of the foundational components. I know I took a lot of time there explaining that, but as you know, man, I have a lot of passion for this stuff. So I, I usually leave it all on the field, as they say. Yeah, the story about the child is uh, really touching in middle school. So I'm sorry for the child, of course, to go through something like that and for the people who had to witness it. And, you know, uh, yeah, it's really it's really saddening. Do you feel like these issues kind of disproportionately affect inner school children? Because it just kind of seems to me from what you described that they're getting it on both ends in the sense that, you know, they need these after school and other extracurricular programs to keep them away from trouble. And then on the other end, you know, they need, of course, like foundational, you know, an academic background so that they can do things, um, you know, when they complete school. Like when you're talking about the child that only can like spell his name and not much else. I mean, obviously they're going to need more tools out in the, out when they, uh, when they complete their schooling. So, do you think that this issue is more disproportionately affecting them just because when I kind of think about it, when you think about it outside of those uh, those areas, kids probably have access to more resources, especially when we're talking to um, things like extracurricular activities or even if they're not like testing well, just because parents can kind of like step in and plug some of those gaps. They can put their kids in dance lessons or they can, you know, uh, they can pay for tutoring lessons and that sort of thing. So I, I just want to kind of hear you riff on a little bit about that, because at least from what you're describing to me, it just seems like they're kind of getting it on both ends. Um, yeah. I mean, look, low, low income means low income. It doesn't mean inner city. You know, it just so happens that I worked in um, high income areas and low income areas as an educator. So, uh, you know, my experience is what I saw in an inner city versus, you know, some of the suburb, so suburban uh, towns and stuff. So you're right. That's exactly exactly what it's supplementing what the parents can or can't do. And if you um, live in an area where, especially if you're listening to this, you're not in the United States, you know, the United States is very like, state by state, but it's also very regional in terms of like, yeah, I, I mean, if you're in a densely populated state, meaning there's a lot of people who live in a close proximity, it's sectioned off by towns. If you live in most of the states, it's sectioned off by counties. And then still there's a state board uh, body or whatever that overlooks the whole thing. And it's just a matter of whether a district that, you know, is, is a low-income district is getting funding and then whether or not that funding has to be earmarked for something. And I'm not even just talking about state funding or national funding. I'm just talking about sometimes, and this happens a lot in the wealthier districts too, you have foundations that work with school boards that do donations. So if a teacher writes a grant, the students are able to get funding through like a private body. And that's that's more along the lines of what I want the journey to be, is to be giving, you know, grants to teachers and to schools that apply for it, that are in need of it, and want to keep programs there that they otherwise wouldn't have the funding for. 
Um, and of course, if there's no ability for the, you know, the parents and stuff to be able to give, give the kids access to that. But yeah, man, again, like I said, it's not happening everywhere, but it's happening enough. And that's why I've been on so many meetings with so many, so many, because obviously you can't just walk into a school anymore. So like a lot of over the past few months, probably eight months, I've been meeting with a lot of educators, um, a lot of administrators really just trying to see where the funding is being cut the most. And, you know, I, th I think my data shows it's, it's music because the instruments are either, they either cut like a, an entire teacher. So one teacher has to go to like five schools over the course of a week. Um, or the students have to share instruments, which is, which is just, you know, it's just, it depends where you are, but the, the problem is still real and it exists. And before we really release any of the funds, I'm really doing my due diligence to make sure it's going to go to people who need it the most. So, I mean, foundation and grant programs have existed before like NFTs and, you know, uh, blockchain. So why your choice in using that? Well, I think what's important to remember is that, you know, a lot of a lot of people are able to give funds and give donations to a foundation or a charity, um, you know, and and sometimes they're able to, you know, write it off or something like that if, if they give it to a 501c3 or something. But I think when you're dealing with NFTs, I mean, me specifically, man, like I was on the collector side of NFTs already. And I saw that NFTs were a lot of times making people millions and millions of dollars, and then they would just sort of disappear. And, you know, you'd, you'd be left with a, a lovely collectible that maybe you could or couldn't resell. And some people did great and they resold and, and good for, for them. I think being able to resell your tokens is a really important part of our space here. But um, I also said we could probably use a blockchain for good, you know, for good causes. Like I think now too about Stacy's, who's um, the founder of Honeys, and she's got a, a something out called Wolfies, which is, you know, it's, a, it's like 0.02 or something like that, but it's raising funds for, you know, for animal right, for animal healthcare, and you know, making sure that that dogs are not mistreated and stuff. And I just look around, and I'm seeing how many of these, you know, <laughs> these altcoins. I'm gonna, I'm not gonna curse, but you know what I'm saying. That have come out and are making these guys all of this money. And you're like, what are you doing? You're taking advantage of all these people who are out here trying to make some gains and stuff. And then I started to realize, man, like there's got to be more to the blockchain than that. Uh, so to take a step back, like my wife and I have been involved in real estate for a while. She's, she's been doing it now for, for quite some time. So when I got licensed to be a realtor, I found that I was able to get a, a certification called crypto certified realtor. And uh, that didn't excite me though, as much as being able to sell a home as an NFT, which just meant it got sort of stamped on the blockchain, still had paper deeds and all that stuff, but you had sort of a digital ownership right to that home. And I said, wait a second, there's something a little bit more special than kind of than these monkey pictures and that kind of stuff. Cause that's really the way I, I thought of it at that time. And then as I got on the collector side, I realized, wow, there really are cool ways to provide utility, but really it was a transparency. It's really that transparency, that proof of ownership, all of those things that give you the proof that you were part of something. So, you know, as a Genesis drop for the journey, I'm always going to remember the very first holders, just like I, and I'm sure we'll get into artists and musicians Genesis drops too, as we continue talking. But, 
you know, I think that the earliest holders are going to be remembered and always rewarded because they believed in something super early. And to me, that's our fund. That's our grant program. And what I want to be able to do is provide an on-chain version of that, that transfer of funds. Because look, whether you and I, you know, whether you lived through Hurricane Sandy or Irene or you had some wildfires or mudslides, wherever you live out there, um, a lot of, or even obviously even the wars that are going on, like you're doing some donations and you don't always exactly know where it's going. Now, look, granted, there needs to be funds split. I totally get that. That's really not my, my, my point is, you know, unless you're literally handing somebody a bottle of water or a meal of food, you don't know where the money's going. You know, I grew up in the New York City area. So if I gave money to somebody on the street who needed it, I didn't know exactly where it was going. And I hope that it went for something that they would need, maybe some soup, some food, you know, maybe I don't know, savings toward what they wanted um, to keep them safe and stuff. But now using Web3 and a blockchain, we can prove exactly where the funds are coming from and where they're going toward. And to me, that's, that's really exciting. It might sound boring to the, the flip, you know, flippers out there and that kind of thing, but to be honest, those aren't really the people that, that follow me anyway, to be honest with you. They're not the ones tuning into my podcast. Yeah, that's not the target segment. There's nothing wrong with it, as we always say, you and I both uh, separately on our podcast. But um, yeah, we're more interested in kind of just like blockchain solving problems um, in the way that you described. And that's what I find so fascinating by your choice of uh, using the blockchain for the journey, because like you said, it involves like transparency. And I think it also involves, and you touched on this too, transparency on both sides, because people can see where the funds are being appropriated. And of course, there's going to be some like overhead costs, of course, you know, that need to be covered. But at least just for the people that are contributing to the cause, they get a lot more transparency into that versus um, a lot of these other causes that we know of, and I'm not going to name names, more mainstream ones, but we just don't exactly know unless if we spend a few minutes, maybe even an hour or so to see exactly where the funds are being appropriated to. So I think that's interesting. I also think the fact that as a contributor, there's transparency there because, although maybe it's a little bit premature to say this because I don't feel like we fully resolve the issues around cryptocurrencies and securities and NFTs and that sort of thing. But I, I, I'm optimistic that we will. Uh, when, I'm not sure, but we're going to resolve those things. But I think uh, as like a donor, uh, that that donation also signifies like some transparency too. So if I have the tax man come after me and say like, hey, I'm not sure if you really donated to this charity, I can hold up, figuratively speaking, not literally because the blockchain's digital, but and say like, yes, I did. Here's a ledger entry on the blockchain on this and this date at this and this time. These funds left, you know, this wallet that I control meme intended. And it uh, went into uh, this particular wallet, which is controlled by the uh, the charity that I donated to. Yeah. So that's, I think, so fascinating and really um, interesting, amazing that that choice of using uh, the blockchain. And like we talked about, just actually using the blockchain to solve real problems. So you met, you talked a bit about the grant program. You talked a bit about the artist support fund and the motivations for starting it. So, like, as far as an implement from an implementation standpoint, if I'm an artist, like, how can I get involved in that, so to speak? How can I benefit from that? 
Um, I mean, you just get on the radar of myself or one of the journey holders. I feel like the fair amount of the art that was purchased using the artist support fund are artists that I've either like met in real life or somebody I know of from one of it's, they're not even alpha groups. They're just like collector groups of people that like art. I don't even really know what, what you'd call them. I just, you know, just refer to the whole thing as web three now, but yeah, just people like putting someone on a radar and doing a little bit of research. And, you know, a lot of times it's, it's to be honest, like I said, there are the people that we've had relationships with. Like I know you and, um, you know, you're a big collector of Andre, you know, Andre Deca life stuff. And, you know, he's somebody who I I got to meet in London, went to one of his live art shows um, there at a gallery, saw Inceptionally there, and, you know, had an opportunity to use some of the artist support uh, funds for one of his pieces. And then, like, for an example, like, there are artists that I've loved since starting Web3, like Oksana, who goes by Gordy Ox, she's from the Ukraine, uh, Zarina Mernaya, um, Andre, who I just mentioned, um, you know, I mean... It, even like Kate Phillipson's edition that she came out with. Like I've, I'm right click saving most of Kate's uh, pieces. And finally I was like, Oh, thank God. There's something that we could put it into our wallet here. Um, I still have some people on a radar too, like Emil MTO. I need to get him, you know, involved in there. And these are just good people in the space. Um, David Houston, who came out with the dead portrait society, really love um, Leah power of women. I think the power pass was maybe the first thing that we bought. And to be honest with you, a conversation I had with Leah when I was at NFT London, um, as well as the Avril team and Kate, who I just mentioned, like if it wasn't for them, I don't know that I would have pressed Mint on the, on, on the journey because there, I knew that I needed something, there needed to be something more because I don't know, man, like I worked in education, so I'm not a salesman in that sense, but I'm really somebody who's very happy to support and, and lift up others and do it in a way that makes sense to me. So you know, when I'm looking around and I see like, you know, MX and I see you know, even people who I've already collected before that and just move them into that same wallet so we can do like a metaverse gallery like we're planning. Like Mason Eve, we did a drop through the OG Collective for Mason Eve and I picked up uh, one of her pieces. So that'll end up in there. Um, Jay Alders, who's a surf artist, uh, you know, from New Jersey. There's a lot of great pieces. Court, um, Courtney goes by the Curly Goddess. We were able to pick up one of hers early. Claire Von Savage is still on the radar. Like there's a lot of people. Oh, and, and Sabit too. I'm so jealous you had on your podcast. Like there's a lot of artists out there that do so many incredible things. And for me, it's not just supporting artists in the sense of giving money, though that is important for the artist, obviously. <laughs> But supporting the artist also means putting them on other people's radar and letting other people out there have exposure to these artists. And that also, hashtag supporting artists includes musicians as well. And as you know, man, like, you know, not just growing up and my mom collected, you know, art and stuff like that, but music plays a very, very big piece in my life and helping me get through some hard times. And, you know, even though my parents aren't around anymore, like I look at some of the art even the art that I've, you know, collected on my own, though, you know, I make this joke sometimes, <laughs> like, you know, now that I have to buy diapers, there's a lot less art, real life art being, <laughs> being purchased. But, you know, music and art to me, like it, it brings me to, brings me back to sometimes really good memories. And sometimes, you know, really 
it's kind of sad because you know you miss people and stuff but if it wasn't for art and it wasn't for music man i don't i don't know that would have been able to get through some of my rough times and so that's why you know paying that forward not just for the kids you know looking at when i was a kid i could have used an adult who understood what i was going through so i try to be that right i love and appreciate art and music so i try to show other people that i'm not really doing this to like make a whole bunch of money by flipping them though i mean look there's some stuff i probably should have flipped let's be honest some pfps that i held on to a little bit too long but there's a lot out there that i just think the blockchain in this web3 world is going to be able to really put a smile on people's faces give them a reason for doing something other than just kind of like coming in and flipping and down the road like maybe we talk about mass adoption whatever that's going to look like for people but i really think that music you know, live events, things like that, um, use cases like that are going to really you know, help provide a, a platform for people to be involved in this full time. So for music NFTs, you've talked about that a few times on your podcast too, but I think like they're not getting as much love as digital art and PFP projects. They're getting more love than they used to, but you can maybe make an argument that they're not getting as much as that they deserve. In your eyes, why do you think that is and what what steps do you think should be taken to kind of help amplify that? So I'm going to respectfully disagree about the love part because I think it's relative. So if we look at the statistics, and though I don't have them, <laughs> just telling you that they exist somewhere, do your own damn research out there. But everything that happened after the FTX debacle really this whole web three nft crypto space on the like from the outside looking in was crumbling but on the inside one of the only consistent things that were selling in web three were music nfts and i look at drops like violetta's and sammy ariaga's and ray isla's rock collection and josh savage's love letters and eventually emma miller who you know these are five those five are like Seeing them live together, I swear to God, in 10, 20 years from now, we're going to be looking back like, wow, I can't believe I got to see these people live in person together. And then, you know, you look at folks like Spotty Wi-Fi who made, what did he make, a quarter of a million dollars in, in a minute with his first I'm Spotty drop? So, you know, and I know that was a little bit before the bear market, but even like people who are up and coming, like Nessie the Rilla has a, a, a Rilla gang music pass that you could pick up and then you get access to all of his other stuff that comes out. And then producers like Nax, I am Nax, who does the fired up, you know, song, which you can actually pick one up for 0.033 on I am Nax.xyz. Incredible producer who's been doing it for like a couple decades. And Illa, the producer, who's Grammy nominated, by the way, and is working on the Yuga team, like for someone to tell me that music NFTs aren't getting love, that's, that just means that maybe like they, they haven't been getting enough in their threads because the music NFTs really held the, this NFT scene together when the rest of the stuff that we loved and we were paying way too much for was going to zero. And I think there's a lot to be said about being not, you know, not just a holder of a music NFT, because look, it's not just about streaming the music and it's, it's about supporting the artist, but also proving that you were one of the earliest holders because, you know, as you know, like supporting an artist in real life, if you and I wanted to spend, you know, a few hundred, maybe thousand dollars to go to a show at, at a giant stadium, maybe you see like the Chili Peppers or something. We're down there. It's cool. We pay the money. We got the, the ticket stub. Maybe we get like, you know, a, a $20 hot dog or whatever people eat at these shows. I don't know. Maybe $20 beer. 
And, uh, you know, we see the band and they're playing their music and it's great. But with NFTs, having proof of ownership is crucial because you're seeing the band, but they see you. So by being a holder of a music NFT and having it a proof of ownership on the blockchain, you've got people like Sammy, like who knows in five years if Sammy is going to have the time to do these private concerts for 15 to 50 of his you know, top holders or whatever, or, or Violetta, who's like got this timeless angelic voice, who's able to do something special at NFT NYC for her holders and spotty Wi-Fi, who just for holding one, I'm getting into parties that would New York, London, Miami would cost me, I don't know, over a thousand dollars and the amount of, I don't know, let's, let's call it fun (laughs) that you have at these parties. And it's just, they really kind of become these all access tickets and they also give you access to token-gated things that you can only get by you know, proving that you own it, connecting your wallet and all that stuff. So there's a whole lot out there, man. And I just think that, David, I think when you're talking about use cases, there's a lot of different kinds. And for a lot of us who got in in you know, 2021 or maybe a little bit before that, the only real use case, and I have conversations with people I respect but you know, respectfully disagree with, the only use case to a lot of people is buying and selling for more, like floor price go up or whatever you want to call it. And I don't know that we're, I don't know that we're really at that point in NFTs anymore. Like some will, you'll be able to flip, but I think we're a little bit more into like buy one that you don't expect to sell because it gives you access to something or you like the art or you like the music. Otherwise, don't put money that you don't want to lose. Not financial advice, but like, don't don't put money you don't want to lose. Like, I don't even know if that is financial advice. Just don't do it. It's a smart smart way to look at it. You've sold me as far as like the use case goes for music NFTs. Uh, I certainly see it. In fact, I would argue that as a podcaster, there's and I talked about this with Violetta, even though it's completely different when you're talking about music and podcasting. But there's a lot of similarities and parallels, too, uh, as like you described in terms of I have a a podcast NFT that gives me more visibility into like who my loyal listeners are so I can provide them with more rewards and benefits. Uh, You know, there's also hope similar to like the musicians, too, with the early uh, people that are early that, um, you know, I'm going to stay here, you know, so I'm not leaving anywhere as like, you know, the musicians that you talked about those names. I don't think they're going anywhere either. So we're going to keep building, right? And so the hope would be that 20, 30 years from now, even just by mere virtue of holding on to the token, like that uh, on its own, it's going to appreciate. I would still push back, though, on the fact that you can't make the case that music NFTs get as much love as they deserve, right? Because let's say let's say you're reading like a publication like you know NFT Evening or Mintify or what have you. It's always like the PFP projects and a few artists that get like the grab the headlines, right? Like whether it's Tyler Hobbs or Fidenza's or what Yuga Labs is doing. So, um, wait, so let me interject then real quick. Like, I think artists are not getting love. That's the problem. It's the projects and the companies that are putting out projects that are able to make money off of them are the ones you like. People talk about Yuga, no one talks about like. You know, no, no disrespect. I mean, you might know who it is, but like Joe Schmo, the artist that, that drew the eyes on the, like nobody, nobody talks about that. And that's to me, what I'm, I'm talking about the nuts and bolts and granular art of the NFT space. So thinking about music, 
like when you and I were growing up, man, tapes and CDs might have cost 10, 15, 20 bucks, closer to 20 bucks. <laughs> but the 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 artist, the musician made what? Pennies off of every $20 CD. And that is the problem. Like when something is controlled by something larger or when somebody is contracted to something larger, that something larger is taking a whole lot of the funds. And honestly, man, like when I was a kid, I remember reading an article about TLC, like the girl, uh, uh, sorry, uh, about TLC, the female R&B group, and the three women were splitting like fractions of a cent, I think it was, per CD. And I was just like, oh, there's something wrong with this. And over time, I saw like how important music was to me in so many different situations. Like imagine birthday parties with no music. Imagine driving your car without the ability, though there are some wonderful podcasts out there, folks, without the ability to listen to music or at being at the gym, not having music. Like it's a part of our life and artists are taking, they are taken for granted. And I, honestly, on a personal level, I'm pretty sick of it. So I have no problem like, you know, buying directly from an artist. And like there might be a piece I love on secondary, shout out Avril 15, uh, that I pick up. But any chance I have to support an artist, if there's a piece I'm interested in, I'm, I'm going to try to do that. And I'm going to not do it with the hopes to resell it. I'm going to do it because I like the art and supporting the artist is very important. So so that's that's more like what I'm what I'm thinking about, man. Like I think they're able to build a community around it and then it becomes something larger. Then it becomes like a company and all that stuff. I, I, I get that, but those aren't, that's not really, you're right. Like there's not a lot of love for the individuals out there. You, there, there might be love for a project because the community can raise the floor price, pump each other's bags, have community-based Twitter spaces. Meanwhile, Violetta is doing thousands of hours and Ray's doing thousands of hours on Twitter spaces. And Sammy's singing his heart out on Twitter spaces with his guitar. And then you look at how hard they work in real life. It's, it doesn't stop. And it just makes me think like, Yo, Jay Z was selling, you know, boot, like like recordings out of the back of his trunk. Like that's how he got started. And you know what? I met Jay Z three times, like over the course of what the '90s into the early 2000s, I guess. And he was one of the nicest guys I ever met in the music industry. And he didn't have to be, because I think that he understands, like he knows what the hard work is, and he got that support directly. So over time, he became one of the people who helped to run companies. And now he's like larger than the company that he was even running. Like so. I don't know. I think there's, you know, I know this was a long interject and I do apologize. Oh, no, you're that, good, man. But I, I, th I just think that like, so even for the journey, like we have a project page on the hug, but we don't have an artist page. So if the journey blows up and becomes something that we do various drops, hint, hint, that may actually be something we do. I hope that Tyler, the artist of the actual original journey pieces are going to get that same love as much as journey, the, the, the journey, the project or Travi for, you know, coming up with the idea and, and going out and trying to make something happen with it. So I think that there's a lot of love that people need to remember. It goes far beyond their wallet, man. Yeah. So what I'm hearing then is I think it's more of a broader problem that goes beyond music and transcends into just like art in more, more in more general terms that, uh, you know, there's just so much more to NFTs than just like monkey pictures and like you said, hopping on Twitter spaces, try to attract, you know, more people into like the quote unquote Ponzi scheme and try to use them as exit liquidity. So uh, you said it. I, I I'm going to say, man, because you and I both <laughs> know how it works. 
Um, so, uh, yeah, so I, I, I completely agree with those sentiments and it's something I've talked about almost like a broken record, like countless number of times on the podcast where I think there's a place for like, if you want to call them PFPs or whatever you want to call them, like call them membership passes that there, those are still going to exist where there's people that are kind of getting together amongst like common interests. So maybe you and I really like, you know, steakhouses or something. So there's like, you know, if you want to call a steakhouse PFP or what have you, there's going to be community, a web three community around people who just really like steakhouses. I think it's going to look different. It's not going to necessarily be limited to just like 10,000 people. It could be maybe like unlimited, but whatever it is, it's just going to be some utilities and perks. And for um, like a group of steakhouses, they can kind of get together to uh, form like a coalition that issues these NFTs. And the benefits could be that they've identified who are like the steakhouse fans across like the globe. And so they get visibility into this. So I see so many different use cases, but I think like for me, like I just see it being applied a lot more differently and less about like speculation, but more about like just getting groups of people together. But I think one thing that's going to stay the same in terms of how it's executed is art. And I think that's kind of timeless. And that sounds, I know, like cheesy, but I think that, you know, the blockchain just solves so many different problems. Again, I'm going to sound like a broken record. I know that you have like a background in art and like um, your parents used to like collect art. And so you have at least a little bit of firsthand experience. For me personally, I have no like background. Like my parents didn't collect any of that. I took like a year of um, art history classes in college around um, art sort of. So I, you know, know some of what the artists are, but I couldn't look at like a painting and tell you like, oh, you know what? I think that's worth like $10,000. And the one next to it, I'm an eyeball. It looks like it's worth like $15,000. Like I can't. <laughs> no, me, me either, man. Like, yeah, I, I maybe like a, a couple of the things that my, my parents had. It just did give me a little bit of a appreciation for the fact that it does exist and that people who have this craft should be respected. That's that's pretty much where, where I'm getting. Yeah. At. But I, the thing is, is I always had trepidation about collecting, even though I appreciate it, I had a lot of trepidation about collecting in real life because I had no idea what to look for. I don't know. It's not like I'm looking for a good deal, but you could tell me that something's worth a hundred thousand dollars. Not that I have that casually lying around, but if I did, let's say I wouldn't know otherwise and I could shell out maybe a hundred thousand dollars. But what the blockchain does is I can focus more on like the aesthetics of what I vibe with. And then as I'm purchasing, I can at least get some it, like inkling as to how much it's worth only because worth is all like a very like put quotes around that. But I could see how much other people are paying for it, like what the transaction record is for that particular piece. So like I can kind of get a ball, even though like I have really no background and I can kind of get a ballpark figure as to like its valuation and seeing who else collects it. And then I've talked about this before that I think is kind of underappreciated is when you buy like a physical piece, there's just so much care that has to go into that. Even just like transporting, it's not a matter of just dropping it off at a UPS store, FedEx store. Um, there's a lot that goes on into transporting. And then if you're buying it from someone else in another country, okay, now you added another element of complication because now you have to deal with customs. Now you have to deal with like exchange rates and currencies and all this other stuff. And you might not even be able to discover that, you know, artist in Iran or Cuba because of like, you know, we, you, and I, you and I are both Americans. So there's a whole like another set of complications around that. So to me, the blockchain solves so many different problems in that respect when you talk about art. And then when you take it into music, I think it solves all those problems and even more because like I could buy music from Apple Music, but 
I don't really actually own that music, so to speak. Like Apple has custody of that. Like I can't like take it, so to speak, and move it over to like some other platform of choice very easily and seamlessly. But with uh, if I buy it on the blockchain, I actually like have more custody of that music. Like I truly own it. Um, and, uh, like maybe a bad example here, but let's say that I decide that, you know, I want to sell it for whatever reason. I just stop liking the artist. Let's say, um, I can do that, you know, uh, but I can't do that with, uh, Apple music, um, songs. And then you can extend like the same parallels over to video games. Same thing. That's why I don't really like to buy digital video games because I can't resell them when I'm, you know, when Madden, like. 26 comes out, uh, it, it just becomes a lot harder to resell if it's in digital form. So yeah, dude, I'm with you hundred percent as far as the different, um, you know, applications. And I think we just kind of touched on the surface as far as like problems that can solve to me, these are like real problems that the blockchain is solving. And I think the PFPs could potentially solve, I call them membership passes almost could solve other problems, but not so much like on the speculation front. Now, uh, it seems like you want to chime in with uh, something. So uh, did you have something you wanted to add to that, Travi? Or? Oh, no, man. You just got, you know, you got me thinking about a lot of stuff, like thinking about membership passes. Like, you know, you talked about steakhouses a moment ago. Like there is an actual that's sta- restaurant. Folks, that's steakhouse, me- S-T-E-A-K, not S-T-A-K-E. I got to be careful about the context. <laughs> context. Yeah. True, true. Go ahead. Right. So, yeah, I mean, there's an NFT that, you know, I I purchased a while back, which will give membership uh, to an actual restaurant called the Fly Fish Club. And it's Gary V and the VCR, his restaurant group. Uh, great guys. They've had you know, some live events. They were obviously spoke at VCon and all kinds of things. And they had um, a, you know, live events in Manhattan and stuff. The restaurant itself is set to be finished in, you know, the beginning or the end of this year, beginning of next year. They shopped around for, you know, one of the best places for real estate in all of Manhattan. You wanted to make sure that they were able to get the best kind of food and vendors and all that stuff. And that the NFT holders would be, you know, comfortable with, you know, all of the proceedings that led to it, including meeting Gary and all kinds of stuff. Uh, You know, and I know that we talk about membership clubs and a lot of people look at it like all you do is you own the same PFP. How is that a membership club? And like, they're right and they're wrong at the same time. I feel like it's what you do with it that really makes it the membership club. Like, for example, <laughs> um, you know, last year's NFT NYC, I was going to some of the first NFT live events that like, there haven't been many NFT live events. Let's be honest. It's only been going on for a few years. And I remember going, I walked to the Lazy Lions one and a lot of people bought their NFT, the Lazy Lions NFT like that day just to get into that party. And that was a, literally a membership club. Like some, there were you know, groups of people there who had you know, high floor prices and were able to make a lot of money from flips and stuff. But I just think overall, it was more just kind of like, hey, if you have this PFP, like you're in, you're on the list. So I do like that. I like the, the you know, having access to things. I just think maybe as we get older, like we like, we don't want to stand on lines for things anymore. <laughs> as we get older, maybe our knees hurt out in the cold and stuff. And no, I'm just kidding. I'm almost but there. There's right a lot now. of, <laughs> yeah, I'm just kidding. No, but there's a lot of great reasons why you should be part of something. It's just really, you should do the thing that, that suits you, right? Or we should do the things that are best for us. So look in real life, like-minded collectors of an artist meet at a gallery. Like we'll have champagne and cheese and whatever and be at the gallery for so-and-so. We're doing it in Web3. 
It's just instead of a gallery, you're in a Discord. And instead of wearing a you know a nice suit or a dress, you got hats and hoodies on. I <laughs> so can live with that. It kind of really, yeah, right. I mean, it 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 aligns like that. So I do think that there there is a something to be said about membership clubs. But again, like even going back to those PFPs, we talked about at the beginning, right? How I was on councils and boards and stuff, and, not, and on teams, and really like there's there's it's really this give and take like the ownership group or the owner of a PFP or an NFT brand, especially a larger one has to really be doing the hard work, right? You can't just do a drop disappear and let the community do everything. But the community, if they do say something or they do kind of step up and and have something that they like to see or some really cool ideas, don't, like shun them for speaking up either there there really needs to be this kind of cyclical give and take from the ownership group or founding team and the current group of of holders and collectors and i think that's something that we know and like but it was always too unbalanced like when the bull was like 2021 the community would be asking when this and when that and when this and when that and a lot of owners got scared off, right? But on the other hand, a lot of owners literally needed to answer that question because they disappeared. So you just never knew because people weren't doxxed at that time. I remember my first like NFT thing. I was like, oh, I guess it's respectful to call this guy uh, uh, Senior Ill, whatever his you know his his fake name was. And I just I just thought like that's how it worked because that's how it worked. And now I just think it's really crucial to make sure for me anyway, that if I'm going to be purchasing something, not only, like I said, am I not really going to be praying for a huge return on it? Yes, it would be nice to make life-changing money. Like, let's not lie. But like, there's more to it. And I think you have to remember who's at the top and who's at the helm. And teams that I worked on, ownership groups changed and the community did everything that they could. They spoke up for months and months and months. And owners were disappearing and we're, we're we're talking about a year year and a half after mint and people are still sort of getting burnt out and fizzled out so i really think that there needs to be something needs to be fixed but i think it starts with really just making sure that you know if you're looking at this as a as some kind of a gamble or investment or whatever you you really look at you know wh- who's out there that you're placing your bet on and not just what's out there that could possibly, you know, I don't know, man. I, I don't know if I explained that well enough, but as you know, like I've seen it on both sides. Like I've seen as a collector really being involved in people saying, Trav, you've got great ideas, like help us build this brand. And also people saying, hey, we really want you on the team. And then the ownership group changing. And then like me, myself as somebody on the team, not getting answers. And I'm sitting there like, yo, we got to tell these people something. Like I myself put thousands of dollars into your project you're the owner i'm like trying to help you out you're not even paying me so could we just get something going here where and a lot of times people just you know just sometimes you bet on the wrong horse but sometimes you bet on the right horse and it's really just really comes down to like the character i feel like of the people and and what they're in this for you talk about your ethos and following your why really try and figure out what somebody's why is and that'll give you just at least a bit of a look in whether they're in this for the long haul or not. Yeah, I think I a few years ago, if you asked me what was the most difficult job in the world, um, I would say it's 
probably there's a few professions that come to life before uh, come to mind. But if you're talking about the most like visible ones, I'd say NFL coach definitely has to rank up there just because they've got such a short lifespan. Today, if you ask me that question, I almost feel like it's being an NFT project owner slash developer because there is just always constant pressure to hit the mark. It, and it's a uh, it's a thankless job and it's one that you can't really turn the lights off, so to speak. So if you have like a nine to five job, you can clock out, so to speak, at five o'clock and you go home. I, with NFTs, it doesn't work that way. You're always on the clock uh, and you always have to be ready. You always have to be responsive. You have to always be present and show up every day, similar to like the artists that you described. So to me, it's one of the most difficult jobs. And then also there's a, like, if you've accepted as a owner, like when you've accepted money, you have this obligation to return back value in some form or another. And it might not necessarily be the value that some of the people who purchased were looking for. So for some people, that value could mean like what you described, being able to get into like a token gated event. For some people, it's like, I don't care. I just want the floor price to go. I don't give a poop about like that event or any of those events. I'm just cared about, I care about. And so it feels like there's always going to be a constituency of people that are always unhappy. And it kind of runs counter to my ethos because on a professional level, Having experience at you know uh, being a manager and director at you know large corporations, my thing has always been is that cyclical feedback loop that you've described, and always being receptive and open to ideas. Um, and it's often people that are the most vocal that care the most to speak up. Here, I'm not saying that I'm going to dismiss that, but it's a very difficult uh, outlook to have because, like I said, you're always going to have constituent a constituency of people that's always just unhappy and truth be told there's always going to be a group of people where they're just like perennially unhappy because they kind of like trolling and you kind of as a like a developer slash owner have to be able to sift that out and kind of just discern that there's just this group of people that just like to troll and just like to you know stir the pot um you know that doesn't really ha that happens a little bit in the professional world but not as much as because the stakes are a lot higher you have a salary that you draw health insurance a lot more benefits so it's a job that i certainly don't envy and it's something i tweeted quite a bit about because i think there's this glitz and glamour if you're very separated from it as a holder that like you know a romanticized viewpoint of it and i feel like it's one of those things that i've never had the role as such but if you are actually in that role uh, yeah, it's a pretty high stress, constant pressure game, um, I feel like. So you've done a really good job of uh, being able to be involved in like different Web3 projects in different capacities. And you're an advisor in some like well-known projects. So you clearly have, and I think that to add another nuance to that is that I think that there's a lot of people that want to be more involved, but they just don't really know how to go about it. So you clearly have the secret sauce on like how to make that happen. So what would be your recommendation to someone who kind of wants to start going into that realm? And I don't think when I mean that realm, I don't mean as like a project owner uh, uh, or a developer, because I think that's kind of just like something that is in the end zone, so to speak. But I think a good stepping stone to kind of just feel things out would be as like an advisor or uh, what have maybe a community manager. Like, how do you get in, more involved in some of these projects that you might be a part of? Good question. Yeah, there's a lot of different um, paths, I guess. Um, one is 
the one that I think most people might be familiar with, which is when you could apply to be like a, a Discord mod mm -hmm. or work uh, on some teams like um, social media or something like that. Like they always sort of need somebody to keep the, the daily wheels turning. And then from there, I think if you prove yourself, you're able to to maybe have a little bit more uh, behind the curtain, if you will, with the company or whatever, if you, if you really like it. There's also job postings out there that you can find. Those are not the ways I did it. <laughs> Those are the more traditional ways I think uh, a lot of people have done it um, and still continue to do it. Uh, another way that I've seen lately, actually, um, especially with some of the musicians we talked about, I know like Sammy and Ray and Violetta have talked about this a lot, where if you have a certain amount of their tokens, um, you actually gain access to their council, and that council helps to vote and give ideas for things. And one one thing that you know Ray turned me on to was like her council helps her, uh, you know, decide her tour, like her tour stops and stuff. Uh, I know V is very big on putting ideas out to her council. Uh, she said it, I think, on your podcast that she puts the ideas out before she. Uh, you know, pulls a trigger on it or whatever. And I think that's, that's the way to go. Um, if you want to, you know, prove yourself as a collector, um, that's one way to do it. But there, there's also obviously money in, in that, like making, you know, purchasing enough tokens. But um, the ways I did it were different uh, than those two ways. So one way, uh, I, I sold out 10K with the successful um, 200 piece generative drop. Uh, they were putting together a council uh, and they had the community actually vote. So I was one of the top vote getters uh, on that vote with some people I respect very much still to this day. Uh, we worked on that um, council for about a year, um, had meetings with the owners that were weekly and then eventually biweekly, some real life meetings and things. Um, and things were going really well until the ownership group, you know, changed hands uh, after that and stuff. But that was that was truly an experience where you really got to see not everything that happens on the inside, but through meetings and zooms and and planning and stuff like that. You got most of the things that weren't legal, that weren't the things that they couldn't share. Um, you got a lot of really good insight, and your feedback was valued. So that was really cool. Um, and then another way that I did it, which was separate from that, was really just liking a project a lot and just setting up a call with the, the founder and who happened to be the artist. Um, and I said, hey, here are some things I like about the project. Here are some things I think could be done. And he was like, why don't you do this? Why don't you lead some Twitter spaces? Why don't you do the things that you know I can't do because I'm out kind of living this real world life of of things that that project was based around. Um, but, you know, even though I spent a lot of time and, and even some, some ETH in that project, I learned a lot. Like I learned a lot through, through all of the things that I was a board member of, um, whether the, the owners are still here or not, because it shows you like you need to, be, first of all, you need to be a collector first to understand that side of things. You really shouldn't be doing things without your collectors in mind. Like in teaching, I shouldn't do something without my students in mind. That wouldn't make any sense. Like I'm just gonna go in and just do whatever I want in the classroom, that would be ridiculous. So why would we do that in business? And why would we do that for people who are spending their hard earned money and ETH on something? So I knew that when the journey would eventually come out, all the holders would always be valued and the earliest ones would always be getting something. And even though you've got people running the opposite direction from the word NFT and crypto, including some early merch partners that I was really excited to work with, it doesn't matter. Like I'm just, 
going to keep on grinding and keep on building because I know what it's like on that collector side. Um, there are friends in this space, you know, people you and I might have met through the OG Collective who put out their own projects. And as a, as a buddy, I got on the phone with them, spent hours helping them sort of pivot and, and sort of reposition um, their drop because the market turned. And, and I have no problem doing things like that. You know, of course, we, we would like to be compensated for our time. But, you know, I don't know, man. I just want to make this world a better place than I found it. And I think Web3 it could uh, definitely use good people um, to do some really good things. And honestly, like maybe tip the scales away from the scammers that are out there and the ruggers that are out there. Like, let's just get some good people um, who are who are doing good things. Like, if your ethos is to make money, then go with that. But be a good person while you do it. Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be like, Hey, tell everybody what to do, like go out and do specific things. But look, there's no reason why you should make people feel terrible in this space, right? There's no reason why people in the space should like say that they're going to do something and not do it. And when you look back at 2021 and those roadmaps that they were selling people on, this is why people became millionaires and everyone thinks NFTs are a scam. Because people were making millions saying, we're going to take you literally to the moon or like, you're going to buy this NFT and you're going to be able to drive this NFT of a car in the metaverse, which like no one even knew what that meant at the time. We just got so excited over it. And I'm looking at roadmaps that like were never fulfilled. Like there was one I bought because at a certain percentage of the mint, they were going to donate X amount to this cancer organization. And I'm just like, yo, like that hits home to me. And they didn't do it. And I'm just like, yo, this is really ruggy. Like, can you do something? And then the next thing you knew, they were like, oh, yeah, the market's down. And then they stopped showing up after that. That's the kind of stuff that makes me, just like I said, when I was a kid and I needed an adult who understood me and can validate me and things I was going through, as a collector, I would really want a founding team or an ownership group to understand what I went through as a collector. So now that I'm, you know, worked as a teacher and now that I'm on, on founding teams and boards and stuff, I'm always looking through the lens of the people that are looking up to us. And that's really important to me. So it sounds to me that just make sure that you're a participant in the space long enough. And that might not necessarily mean duration wise in terms of yours, but long enough in the amount of time that you put into it, because you can be in this space for six years already, let's say, but if you've only, you know, uh, hopped on a discord every like three weeks, and I wouldn't say that, you know, you've spent a lot of time in this space, even though it might seem like it, but just kind of being active, being present and taking a lot of those learnings that you see. And then, uh, you know, at some point, and I think for everyone, it's going to be a little bit different when you feel like you're comfortable enough and have the tool set and probably also establish the credibility, like you said, because um, you know, I think the space is a lot different than it was, even though it wasn't too long ago, but it's a lot different than it was like two years ago, where I don't think just any Joe Schmo can go out there. I mean, they could go out there and launch a project, but I think at this point, you've got names in the space that people trust, and there have been enough uh, rugs and failures out there that it's really difficult, which is a good thing for just kind of a Joe Schmo on docs to go out there and have a wildly success. We've seen some exceptions to that rule still, you know, I'm not saying that as like a, uh, uh, as a blanket rule, but uh, it, it's becoming a little bit more difficult, which is a good thing. People are a lot more skeptical, especially when they see lofty roadmaps promising to, you know, do this, do that. And, you know, deep down inside that, especially in this market, a lot of those things are unattainable. So 
I'm going to ask you one more question because you brought it up earlier and we've talked about it off air last time. Uh, and I know that people are kind of just dying to hear more about it because I didn't ask any follow-up question to this. And that question is, is how did you meet Jay-Z and like, how did that go? I mean, like, give us the deets. I mean, look, growing up in the New York City kind of tri-state area, like that's where a lot of these these dudes are from, man. So like, you know, as I mentioned, music is a big part of my life. Obviously, there's all different genres out there. Me personally, growing up, it was a lot easier to get my hands on like hip hop early before it hit like radio stations and that kind of stuff. Um, I remember walking around like lower Manhattan and you, you'd see like this this carpet out in front of a store and there'd be like a fake Gucci bag or a fake Prada bag and like an array of these bootleg tapes. And a lot of them were mixtapes. And you'd hear of an artist that wouldn't be on the radio for, gosh, like maybe six months, maybe a year and stuff. And you're just like, wait a second. Like, I know this song. It had a different beat because it was kind of like that gritty sort of, you know, demo style or whatever. Um you know, and I, and I just think about like East Coast versus West Coast at that time, like even a little bit later, actually. And I'm just like, man, like how lucky to me as like a hip hop fan, like I like rock, don't get me wrong. I'll listen to country. I listen to it, you know, jazz, classical, doesn't matter. But um, like I'm, I'm thinking back to like early Jay-Z, like early Wu-Tang, like Biggie when Biggie was coming up, even Nas, like Tribe Called Quest, a lot of the Brooklyn rappers, like Most Def and Talib Kweli. Um, you know, eventually like down the road, you had people who are like less well-known nationally that like, I loved even more like MF doom is one of my favorite rappers. And now there's people from Buffalo, um, Conway, the machine and West side gun. And, uh, you know, they're called Griselda and Benny the butcher. Like there's a lot of people who have done some amazing things, but I think I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't say Jay-Z made it bigger you know than everybody with given what he started with and so that's why i used him as an example earlier um when i met him the first time um i was actually at a show um it was like the mid to late 90s it was like it was like around that time right before i feel like dmx blew up and uh nori's first album it was probably like 90 might have been around like 1998 i'll just say 1998 and uh, so I was young, um, and it was right after Biggie died, and so it was Puffy and Mace and Jay Z and Foxy Brown and Busta Rhymes and Usher and One Twelve and Little Kim, and I know I'm forgetting somebody. Oh, The Locks, Money, Power, Respect. Um, it was an incredible show, and for some odd reason, my tickets were in the friends and family section, and. Uh, there's also a story I didn't tell you. <laughs> so in the friends and family section, a lot of the hip hop artists would come up and spend some time with their families. And um, Jay-Z was one of the people who came up and he had a bottle of Cristal, which I had no idea what it was at the time. I just thought it looked cool. Um, and, you know, he was sharing some. And I, I told him how, how you know, much of a fan of his I, I was and stuff and how I think he's going to be you know, really successful. Because at that time, too, he was kind of like a mid-card sort of person on the show. Like he, was, he already had recordings that were going to be bigger, but they weren't. And there was no Beyonce and then obviously, then, right? I mean, on his scene, yeah. There, this, was, this wasn't yeah, yeah. Beyonce, but I think, I think it was before um, In My Lifetime volume. I th what was the one with all the singles? Volume three, maybe? about two or three, the one with like, with all, with every song was a single on a radio. Um, it was just like, just before that, that little era. 
Um, and he was super nice and thanked me and shook my hand and, and had, you know, smiling and all that stuff. What I didn't tell you was DMX came up oh, after that, that took, my, took my camera and did not want to give it back to me. <laughs> <laughs> and so I'm like, I'm like this skinny kid with like a, I think I had a Mecca. I don't know if you remember that brand, Mecca. I had like a surfer cut. And I'm just like sitting there like with this look on my face like this man is either going to seriously steal my camera or he's going to beat me up for asking for it back. And I think the girl that he was with, I guess his, his lady, I'm, you know, whatever, I don't know. Um, she, get, she gave it back. She kind of like said Earl, like give it back to him. Uh, and then he, he said some not so nice words to me. And then I took a picture of him, but I didn't know who he was because his first, his first album hadn't come out yet. And uh, so, the, you know, the juxtaposition there between DMX and Jay-Z, but both of them, you know, were still people I respected as hip hop artists. But I think, you know, the kind of the grittiness and, and kind of like that, that street kind of tough vibe that I got from DMX almost even, and again, I'll, and I'll, I'm going to keep saying it, like DMX was one of my favorite rappers eventually too uh, in that era, but it, it actually shone a light on what Jay-Z could have actually said. He could have just been like, I'm too you know, this or to that for you. But he's, but he was very nice and respectful. And I met him again when I was working, you know, doing some undergrad work and um, met him at the 4040 club in New York and met him at some fashion um, parties that were put on by different, um, you know, fashion houses and stuff like that during uh, fashion week, which is a big week. Uh, you guys all know what fashion week is. I don't have to, <laughs> I have to explain that to you, but each and every one of those times, it, it was like, he was looking at me like a friend. And he didn't need to do that. And it always reminded me of it. Not that I'll ever be as famous or something as Jay-Z, but how if I ever do something great with my life, like I can always be a friendly, friendly person. And, and a Web3 version of this for me, I'm just going to put this there too, is Spotty Wi-Fi. Because Spotty could have easily taken all of his mint funds and, and left, but he continued to work, continued to do shows, continued to provide things for his holders. And you know, during NFT NYC, I got to spend a fair amount of time with him and his wife, Spotty Wifey, and he would introduce me to famous rappers, NBA players and stuff. And he would not just say, this is my guy, Travi. He would say, and he was one of my first purchasers of my music NFT. And that kind of like all goes to show, like if you're leading from the right place, if you're leading with your heart, like it will be reciprocated. And I think, you know, that's why that's the stories about Jay-Z and all that stuff still resonate with me today because it reminds me whether I make, you know, no money in the NFT space or the journey itself becomes this national brand that's raising millions of dollars for, for kids like I hope it can be. I'm not going to think anything other than the words thank you. Who knew that life lessons could also be applied in Web3 and the metaverse? So go figure. Hey, so listen, man, really appreciate you coming on the pod again. Uh, so I know that the audio didn't come out so great last time. Of course, that was on me. Uh, and you didn't have to make the time to come up again, but you did. And I really do appreciate that. And I love uh, your knowledge, your words of wisdom, your support for artists, your support for children, your support for other podcasters, too. I know that you've, uh, you know, you support me. We're part of the journey also. Uh, and you've supported a whole bunch of other uh, podcasters as well, like Fanzo. So just appreciate you being you, man. So you're welcome back anytime. Thank you very much. I, I want to just say this for sure. Like, it's a very interesting and exciting time in Web3. I think that the market itself makes a lot of people down. Um, but there are things out there that could be exciting. I'm very excited to see what happens with Avril Season 3. 
Avril 15 Season 3 is out. I'm always looking to see what OSF and Wreck Guy is coming out with next. They're really exciting for me to watch as kind of artists growing in the space. Um, I think there's a lot of great people out there like yourself. Like you said, I'm also a co-host on NFT365 with Fanzo um, on a number of episodes. Um, and I'm really enjoying the friendships and the bonds that we make here in Web3 because that's what it's about, whether you're you know, a member of the OG Collective, which are people who we're very close with. Um, you're a collector. You're an artist. Somebody we could just vibe with and click with. Like That's what it's all about. And really, the one important thing is to do what I always try to do, and that is bring one love to Web3. That was a fun conversation with Travi. I had to closely watch my uh, stopwatch there because I know with Travi and I, we're both podcasters. So if we're not keeping track of time, we could just talk forever and forever. So uh, good conversation. So let's get to everyone's favorite moment, the shout outs. And after that, let's talk about what will happen next with the podcast. So I strongly do recommend listening to that portion of it. Um, not that I think that you guys are skipping parts, but hopefully not. Uh, but uh, there is some important information there that I don't want you guys to miss out on. So, so shout out time for the mentors of the last episode of the pod. And if you don't know what that means, I'll explain later at the end of the podcast what that entails. So the first person I want to give a shout out to is our last guest, the Rev. Uh, he was an awesome guest, uh, based on the analytics I get. It seems like you guys really thought so too. So Rev, I really appreciate you coming on the pod. I love exchanging DMs with you on the daily. I still think it's pretty cool that, you know, 20 years later, we have common interests, albeit they're a lot different than what they were 20 years ago. But again, thank you, sir. Thanks for appearing on the podcast and thanks for being a full set holder. So next up is Sergo, who I believe is a first time mentor. I know him from the on-chain monkey community, just a solid person with a positive disposition. Uh, Sergo, really honored to have you mint an episode. Welcome to the family, and thank you for minting. Next up is Emil MTO. He's a talented and amazing artist who's amongst the full set holders. He just launched a merch store, and I copped a shirt for myself earlier. So go check out his profile. It's uh, on Twitter at Emil MTO. That's E M M as in Mary, I L M again M as in Mary T O on Twitter. So check out his new store. I'm sure you're going to find something that you like there. Next is Deco Life. Uh, Andre Deco Life, a Brazilian artist based in the UK. Deco Life has some cool things going on in this bear market. So definitely check out his Twitter profile. And that's spelled uh, at Deco Life, D-E-C-O-L-I-F-E-1. He was also a guest on the last season of the uh, last season of the pod. So you can check out his profile there. And also check out the episode, of course. Let's see. Next, exceptionally notable collector, a member of the OG Collective, a Deco Life whale, and also a guest on the episode, on one of the episodes this season. I think it was the second one. So um, one thing I do know is that based on the analytics I received, that was actually one of the most well-received episodes, not just for this season, but ever on the podcast, so both uh, last season and this season. So conceptually. Thanks for supporting me. Thank you for supporting the pod. I appreciate you minting. Next, DV Dan. I got to fight the temptation to call you DVD Dan. Uh, DV Dan, my man. I was hoping to uh, see you in the Bay Area when I was going, uh, when I planned on going there in July, but it looks like you'll be out of town that week. So 
Maybe we'll reconnect in person another time. Um, anyways, as always, thanks for being you. Just thanks for being a good person. I appreciate you minting. Next on the list, SJS Inc. He's just been an awesome supporter from day one. I know him from the Dead Fellas community. He's someone I think would actually be a really cool guest to have on the pod. So, you know, we got to make arrangements to make that happen one day sometime next season. Um, so SJS Inc., thank you so much for minting, my friend. And last but not least is our guest, Travi. Yep. The journey is also a full set holder. Uh, I really appreciate the support of the journey, support of Travi. It's no coincidence that we had him on the final episode here of the season to send us off. So Travi, thank you. Thank you, the journey. Thanks for being a supporter. Appreciate you minting. So the last thing I wanted to touch on is the rebranding. If you're a subscriber of the pod, what will happen in the next few weeks is a new podcast episode will pop up and it may look unfamiliar to you because it's going to have like a different name, a different logo. And when you listen to it, it, it's going to sound different right out of the gate because it's like a different theme song. So at the risk of sounding repetitive, the name of the podcast will be the blockchain experience. As a subscriber, there's no additional action required on your end. I just want to give you guys a heads up and don't want to lose any subscribers because they think that it's like the wrong podcast. So, so why the rebrand? When the podcast initially launched in the summer of 2022, it was squarely focused on emerging one of one artists. I did have a lot of inquiries throughout the course of that season about projects and people wanting to appear on the pod, but I turned them down just because it felt like it was way too off brand and the podcast was new back then. So it didn't really have its own like brand identity and it'd be kind of a little bit weird to state that you have a particular mission. And then very early within the game, you start bringing on guests that don't really align with that mission. So what we did starting January, 2023 and the podcast was a little bit more established you know, by that we started talking to, I mean, let me go back. We still talk to artists and the original mission of the podcast, but we also started to expand beyond that and talk to collectors and project founders and other major players in this space. And, you know, it worked actually really, really well. I think for our core group of listeners, they got to hear about different parts of the space that was new to them. And then frankly, a lot of the projects were new to me too, actually. So, uh, the benefit also for the, you know, for the people that were the guests is that they got to tap into a segment that they uh, traditionally didn't have access to. So it just worked out really well for all people involved. So we're going to continue doing that next season and update everything around the podcast to just best serve that audience and kind of like widen its appeal. So hence like a more, you know, generic sounding kind of name, although that kind of sounds worse than it really is intended to be, but you know, more broadly just call like the bot, the, the blockchain experience as opposed to the dead NFT artist society. Speaking of which, uh, the name, um, you know, additionally the podcast, we started using dead fellows ip and while we still very much align with the spirit and values of the dead fellows having a podcast based on the ip of a collection just poses its own set of challenges and constraints so having ip now that isn't tied to a particular collection just gives me a lot more latitude to do things so 
I wanted to uh, pause for a moment and just, you know, first thank the guests that we had this season. So that'd be Miss NFT, Inceptionally, Nathan Bowman, Sabet, Art Jedi, Freddie, Danny Yang from OnChain Monkey, Paul Jenkins, Douglas, Violetta Zaroni, The Rev, and Travi. You guys were all amazing guests and really helped the podcast reach heights that I that I only dreamed of when I first started to do the podcast. And let's be frank, almost every episode that we've had, it's based on interviews that we've done with guests. And so people are not tuning in to listen to me. They're tuning in to listen to our amazing guests. A huge, huge, huge amount of credit and debt and gratitude goes to them for making the podcast the success it's been so far. So what will happen next uh, for the next episode is I will drop another episode in two weeks. That's not going to be July 10th, as you can probably tell from the timeline. Uh, what will happen with that episode is it's going to be kind of this weird transitionary type thing. It won't be officially part of this season that we're in season one, um, but it's not going to be part of season two either. It'll just be a solo episode as far as the content goes, where I'm just going to be chiming in on just different thoughts that I have around Web3, uh, the Web3 space at the moment that I dropped the episode. It's really intended to serve kind of as like a test run just to make sure that everything works and fires correctly, that the audio quality, just even minute things, that the audio quality for the theme song and my voice blended in works okay and we get the timing of that right. And the, you know, the uh, sponsorships, the audio quality for that will be okay. We have new recordings for for those. So just really making sure that everything fires well on the podcast. And additionally, it's going to be a brand new NIF, uh, minting process through Nifty Gateway. So I need to try that out. You guys need to try that out. Um, as I've said many times before, it should be a good experience. The minting fees will only be a dollar moving forward. And it's only a dollar just because I have to charge something. The bare minimum I could charge was a dollar. So that's, again, not intended to be a money grab. But I think the, tra- the trade-off there is that it's going to be significant savings in terms of minting fees. And then uh, for me, it's going to be a significant savings in terms of just dropping. Because as you guys know who have worked with uh, smart contracts before is that each drop on its own wasn't a significant amount of money, but over the course of 12 episodes, the fees started to rack up on that, becoming a little bit harder to make the podcast more sustain, uh, to be as sustainable as I'd like it to be. So a huge amount of benefits there for all sides. So uh, before I sign off, I just want to take a moment and thank and acknowledge some people who have not been guests on the podcast before, but they have been people that I've drawn inspiration from they are people that i might have talked to you know sending dms and just asking them like technical questions about like you know uh they most of these people are podcasters or they host twitter spaces and just asking them even mundane questions like how do you get the i know that they have this they have a similar audio setup as i do and just asking them more like hey you know how did you set up this what threshold did you have to reach to get you know this to sound like that those kinds of things so um, you know, it's a very wide range of uh, different contributions that these people have made. And some of them, they might have not knowingly made contributions, so to speak, but they have contributed in my eyes in the way that, like I said earlier, that I've drawn inspiration from them. So uh, those folks would be Kevin Rose, NFT Statistics, Carly Riley, Zeneca, Emily V, The Voice of DeFi, Ryan Carson, Farouk, Nicole Benham, David Hoffman, Ryan Sean Adams, Kalo. 
Ken Melendez, NFT Breezy, NFT God, I am Chill Pill, and there's just so many more people that I can just rattle off. Uh, because I'll tell you guys, even if I didn't name you, uh, you are likely someone I've run into the space, maybe even had a conversation. No doubt you've said something that at some point, me being the introspective dude that I am, that made me think. And in that way, you've contributed to the podcast and making it the way that it is right now. So anyways, signing off for now, please leave that five-star rating and a written review really helps the algorithm. And uh, the next time we'll be back, we'll be back as the blockchain experience. Bye-bye, all. Welcome to the blockchain experience, experience. Bringing dope content to the audience. Welcome to the blockchain experience. Bringing dope content to the audience. It's the blockchain spell. Made a David's got so much to tell. Bringing you the latest news. Bringing dope content to the audience